Coming to you from somewhere near Chinatown, Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm sitting down with the guest Sam Sweet. He's a writer on a variety of subjects. He's written for the New Yorker, the Paris Review, Stop Smiling, and several other venues. Subjects often related to the city of Los Angeles. And if, you, if you're at all a Los Angeles enthusiast, which is certainly the crowd I run with, you'll have heard of his series of, I don't know if I would call them, chapbooks or booklets, uh, short books. In any case, the series is called All Night Menu. Each one of them, and it's going to be a series of five, two of which are out right now, each one covers, starts with, let's not say covers, let's say starts with a series of addresses and tells a sort of micro-history of Los Angeles, not of the whole city, but of one specific address and of what happened at that address. This is the opposite of what they call big history, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I'm fond of the term uh, when describing the subject of the booklets, uh, lost heroes and miniature histories. It's something that, it's an interest that for you extends beyond Los Angeles, doesn't it? I mean, look at, I look at your website and you have you have pieces on there as well that that make me ask the question, these short histories, they make me ask the question, what does he start with when he gets the idea of writing about, I don't know, Cal Worthington, the icon, the icon of late-night car salesmanship here in Southern California. What was the artifact you started with where you went on to write the, a, a short history of that man's career and place in Southern California. I mean, that was written, of course, just after he died, so he had an occasion. But, you know, what kind of things, what artifacts, what pieces of history, what are the seeds for these pieces that you write, whether it's an all-night menu or somewhere else? I think in a lot of cases it, it came out of coming across photos um, and wanting to write a caption for them. And... In the process of, uh, to me, a caption has to be specific. It has to tell you what is happening in a photograph. And just in the process of trying to do that with certain photos, you naturally start to develop um, a, a short story in the form of a set of details. It's, it's a sense you get as a reader anyway as I get as a reader, reading any caption photo anywhere where you're looking at the tip of an iceberg. And this is especially true for me in the age of the Internet. I feel like you can always get lost trying to find out, well, that there's a photo, there's a caption. What else don't I know, right? I mean, this has to be, is this a phenomenon for you? I feel like with the all-night menu books, they have a certain low-tech, a deliberately low-tech appeal. But I can also imagine you getting lost in vast rabbit holes historically on the Internet, just following, you know, I wonder... When this photo was taken, I wonder why it was taken. I wonder who that is. I wonder who this is in the background. Do you know what I mean? That's precisely. Uh, th- those rabbit holes are my uh, stomping grounds. Sure. And I, I wouldn't say the books are anti, or, or I wouldn't say they're low tech. I'd say they're anti digital. But having said that, they, they're possible now in a way that they weren't 10 years ago because of the access I have to digital archives mm-hmm. and uh, the ones in LA are unbelievable. If, if you want to learn about, um, a specific Los Angeles subject or a photo, the Los Angeles public library, digital archive, the USC digital archive, these are vast, uh, newspaper archives that have become incredibly easy to search. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as well as, dozens of other newspapers now and 
periodicals and books that you can fly through with mm. with uh, with Google Books and with uh, online archives. So there's there's this hyper facility that's possible in research now that that has definitely fueled these books, even though they're as objects, they're anti-digital. And in these books, as I say, it's divided up by address. We have a series of histories in each of the books, each of which begins with an address, and you'll read about what happened at that address in the story you tell. But I can't imagine the address is the thing you start with. It's never, it's never like, I want to, I want to find out what happened at 5825 Melrose. You know what I mean? Is that ever, do you ever just want to find the history of a building though? <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. I, I, I usually get the question, how do you, people seem mystified as to how these stories materialize. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm glad you picked up on the idea that uh, no, of course I don't start with, you know, 1524 Portland mm -hmm. Avenue. And, um, you know, and oftentimes there are buildings I'm curious about, but it's actually hard to develop stories starting with an address. Mm. I usually start with a subject, a part of town, a specific photo that hasn't been properly captioned, and... Um, and just try to find out as much as I can about it. And uh, from that, like I said, a, a series of details will sort of create a narrative on its own, naturally, as long as you sort of, um, as long as you keep an eye on details and, and keep an eye on which details have meaning, uh, the story will come out of those details. And of course, there are characters as well, not just human beings, but characters in, in the sense of colorful, colorful characters. Uh, for example, I, my, the image that comes to mind is one of the particularly haunting ones of the many haunting images in this latest volume, volume two, which is of, uh, an old lady in a sort of tall hat, a spire-like hat and very tall platforms who roamed the streets of, what, what part of town exactly did she roam the streets of? That's like the, uh, Melrose Fairfax district, basically. Uh, yeah, that's the lava lady. I'd say that's that's sort of the breakout hit of this book, this volume. This that's the one that is certainly most familiar to um, Los Angeles residents. I I run into and uh, she left town in the early two thousands. So uh, people like you and I who've moved here more recently don't remember her, but. Uh, if you lived anywhere near that district or even spent any time there in the 80s or 90s, that's not an obscure character. She oh. really is a, uh, she was, she was a legend of that part of town. I forget, I forget whether you mention in the history when she was in town, but I feel like I either didn't pick up on it or didn't want to know because she seemed like such a timeless figure in the photo. Like she didn't exist in a time period there. And I wanted to envision her not in the 80s, not in the 90s, but just as sort of a ghost, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and figures like that, too, are in the book, not just because they're um, extraordinary characters who are specific to L.A., but also because thematically... Uh, these characters sort of tap into important ideas about what L.A.'s character is. And, you know, when you say colorful characters, the, the first thing I think of is the, the thing that most drives this series is character. And not just, the, not just these 
characters in the form of, of people, but uh, just the idea of what is the character of a place, what gives a place character, and what does it mean to have character, and and that's just something I feel is often lacking from nonfiction writing about L.A., um, but to me that's the fundamental uh, way you you understand something, whether it's a person or a place, is what is their character? What does that mean? I think of the characters more popularly associated with Los Angeles outside Los Angeles, and you know, Angeline. I don't know. There's an, there's an right. example, or who else? Uh, you know, Juan Dominguez. Maybe he's better known here, but he's on the side of every bus. You know, yeah. people come away with certain characters, and they think of those as characteristic of Los Angeles. And it makes me think of the older books written on Los Angeles and Southern California generally in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 20s, describing Los Angeles as a sort of refuge for the, the characters of America, the sort of nuts or eccentrics or yeah. the Amy Simple McPherson's. He was Canadian, I realize. But, you know, how much does that still hold, this idea of Los Angeles as a receptacle for America's characters? I think that's a uh, skewed take on a true aspect of LA's culture. I mean, I think I think it's absolutely true that um, LA fundamentally allows for the outrageous to happen, and fundamentally allows for rules to be broken and for uh, for contradictions to occur. You know, and it, that climate certainly will produce a share of kooks, but um, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't say that kooks are what make L.A. unique. Yeah, I never, they never were, really. Yeah. Yeah, and also, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I, you know, and also, I love, uh, Angeline and Juan Dominguez are I mean, we're talking heroic LA figures here, but but it would—it's a mistake to um, to use those as emblems for the entire city rather than exponents of the city. Two of many is—I feel like lack of emblems is one of the things that has characterized Los Angeles this whole time, right? Or am I wrong? Uh, I think false emblems are have abound. Have, have abound. They they have characterized Los Angeles, but it is not a city where one thing can stand in for the whole ever. I've ne- I've never seen really the booklet series is resisting the idea of emblems at all uh, because it, they're proposed all the time when people are talking about L.A. But I've never seen. Maybe it'd be, if you can name one, but I've never seen one, one emblem that actually functions as a truth when it comes to talking about L.A. as a place. I always think of the headline, not the headline, the, the logo of a uh, news site I read a lot, LAist, which takes the silhouettes of, I think, the Disney Concert Hall and the Capitol Records building and uh, a couple palm trees and disparate structures and tall things and puts them all up together and like as if they were next to each other and that's i think it's you know it's just missing the century plaza towers or something right there it's <laughs> it's it seems to speak to a certain desire to just 
sweep up all, all the things that make Los Angeles Los Angeles, like poker chips into one spot. Like finally, finally we've done it. But, you know, it makes me think of your article on um, Grand Theft Auto V, where they created the island of Los Santos, a city that is in many respects Los Angeles, but they've made it, again, contained, an island. They've made it smaller. They've put the landmarks together. And I feel like there's a similar current of desire these two projects tap into, the LAS logo and the the Los Santos Los Angeles that is exactly what you're not going for, right? Yeah, I I guess two things about that are I, I the idea behind Los Santos is um we Los Angeles has all these elements that we would love for our video game, but if we could perform some plastic surgery, then we could make it really fun. But to me, and the process doing this project has only born uh, has just proved this is that the truth is always more interesting than uh, than any sort of plastic surgery you could perform to to make something better. You know, if LAS really did have some sort of uh, lineup of tall things <laughs> that was somehow more truthfully representative of the city, I mean, that would be amazing. That would be way better. It would be a better sell on the city. It would be better for the site. Um, and, you know, in almost every case, uh, being truthful is... By, is just by its nature going to be more entertaining, more fascinating, more fun than, than any sort of, uh, geographical, uh, plastic surgery. Yeah. know, Tom Anderson has some great line about that. And, uh, in Los Angeles plays itself about, you know, like I, I, I don't like geographical liberties when, you know, there's a chase happening and, and uh, <laughs> it'll go from San Pedro to Santa Monica to uh, downtown LA in the course uh, of Cobra does that. Yeah. Sylvester Stallone movie. I love Cobra. <laughs> is that the one he's talking about when yes, it is, oh, it is. Cobra's Cobra's an incredible movie, <laughs> but I, but I'm with him that, uh, that, uh, Specificity is important to me as a concept, but it's also it's just a helpful way to orient yourself because I feel like being specific will keep you truthful and being truthful will keep your writing interesting and uh, as well as accurate. There is a way as well that certain truths get not forgotten, but there are true things about Los Angeles that we here forget are distinctive in Los Angeles sometimes. Some people do, some people don't, but it sometimes takes an outsider. Like, the guys making Grand Theft Auto V are, I believe, from the UK, and they only ever see rain, and came here and were thrilled, as you write, by the light here. And I feel like I read so much about the light. I know you quote David Lynch talking about the light, and people not from Los Angeles will talk ceaselessly about how the light is here, and I... I feel like it's such a default to me. I couldn't tell you what's different about the light here. If, if I leave for a while, maybe I can, but... Have you been able to keep your grasp on what people mean when they talk about the light, that specific quality, which I guess is so, so distinctive here? Well, I'm one of those people who talks about the light, so I just... Uh, <laughs> so please go on. Yeah, so I, just because it's a cliche doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that it's harder to talk about it in an effective way because it is such a cliche, but... Is it just really bright, or... No, it, no, it's not. It's, um, I mean... 
You know, for me, I don't hear people talk about the light. I think maybe that's... I remember reading an interview with Gordon Willis, who is an unbelievable cinematographer who did Godfather and Annie Hall and Manhattan and all these um, renowned movies and sort of really seen as this master of cinematographer, cinematography. And, of course, cinematographers are purveyors of light and and... Uh, he said something uh, about how there was like the light in Los Angeles was horrible. Like there was no, <laughs> there was no quality to the light. Yeah. It was shocking to me that someone who could, who could, who spent their whole life working in that medium couldn't be attuned to the distinctive quality of the light in LA. And I think there is a certain, there's a certain, uh, not harshness, but um, the, 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 there's a certain blasting quality to the light in midday that I think is distinctive. And that's why if you watch sitcoms like The Office and they go out into the parking lot, you can really instantly tell that. I mean, the light in Pennsylvania does not look like that. Even in mid- they kept the palm trees out, but that wasn't enough. Most of the time, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but for me, the definitive LA light is really um, is really in the afternoon. And for me, the definitive way to sort of uh, convey what's special about the light in LA is that uh, towards the end of the day, you can be on the most anonymous street with some of the ugliest, most brutal architecture and commercial signage and gas stations. And there's about half an hour every day in LA where that scenery will become just fathomlessly beautiful just because of the light. I mean, isn't that the test isn't that the test of a light? I mean, to turn something that's so hideous to so many people into something <laughs> just so unbelievably irresistible, I, that to me is always sort of the great affirmation of the light in L.A., and you get that once a day, every day. It is something that I hear, I hear people when they complain about Los Angeles, and I'm hearing fewer complaints by the day these days, but when somebody really doesn't like Los Angeles, they'll sometimes say or in my experience often, that, okay, the light is maybe the one good thing. They'll single that out. It's like you can maybe get them to break on the issue of the light. But I feel like even that, even that sort of the hostility to Los Angeles in which that comment is sometimes embedded has been dramatically dropping in the past 10, 15 years. And what's been your perception of that? Has Has the hostility to Los Angeles as a place really started to go away? Yeah, absolutely. And exponentially, I'd say, in the past 10 years. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's overwhelming. For me, part of choosing L.A. as a city was always defined by the fact that it was so stigmatized. Mm-hmm. It was a choice. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it was... A, it was it was a completely stigmatized choice. I mean, I grew up in the Northeast, and to to move to LA, it uh, it was so verboten that uh, people would soon, you know, 
if you decided to move to Spain or Germany, uh, you know, it, forgive that. Yeah, that would be that would be more in line, more logical than than moving to LA. What did they say was wrong with your choice to move to Los Angeles? There was oh, there was never any logic behind it. It was just <laughs> it, it was yeah, it was just this visceral reaction, which was incredibly appealing to me, which was just. Why? Why would you move there? Why would you move there? Mm. Just this horror, like as if I was moving to Fallujah or something. You know, <laughs> I'm the only place that people hated as much as that was the Deep South, and that's where I lived before I came out here. <laughs> and those places in the Northeast, it was treated like they were. Um, that was like the axis of evil or something, and uh, that was real appealing for me. And I'm sad that that's. That's definitely changing. It's no longer stigmatized in that way. What, even if those people couldn't articulate their, the repulsion they felt to Los Angeles, what, what do you think it came from? I'm sure you've thought about it. I think, uh, I think that there's a particular sort of Northeastern antipathy that just has to do with New York being a media center for you know, more than a hundred years and New York sort of having to preserve itself as the hub of culture and intellect in the United States for all kinds of reasons. And, um, I don't know, to be honest, uh, they, uh, maybe all those years they were just worried that if people actually moved to LA, they'd realize how, <laughs> like how, what an amazing place it is because what's happening now seems to be that exodus from New York and people, people, um, it's sort of dawning on people that like, oh, wait a minute, that, uh, I actually like the, quality of life out here um not just light but life yeah not just light it's great you hear about the light though because i don't i i don't hear um i mean when a guy like gordon willis is saying there's there's no good light in la i can't imagine that i'd be running into people on the street who are attuned to that but but that's great you hear that from people there's no light gordon willis wants to use yeah okay Fair enough. Well, he's dead now, yes. so there's no light he can <laughs> use. Yeah. But Exactly. It's all unavailable to him. <laughs> I wonder, from here, how far in your mind do you have to go before it's not Los Angeles anymore? How far outward? Right. Um, yeah, we were talking before you turned on this, your recorder, and uh, I was saying Chatsworth is part of my purview, and you uh, recoiled a little bit. But to me, when you... When you Go north of the valley, Ventura County feels different. You said you were in Santa Barbara. I mean, certainly that's, it's not something that I can um, diagram on a piece of paper, but Ventura County feels different. When you're in Long Beach, to me, that still feels like LA, but certainly when you go to Orange County, it's a different culture. It just, there's something about it that, um, it's an in, it's an intuitive feeling, but it, it feels different. The hardest one to define is moving um, eastward for yeah, me, yeah. because when I certainly when you're in, you know, when you're eating dumplings in Arcadia, there's something essentially LA about that. There's something essentially LA about the donut hole in La Puente, right. um, and yet the San Gabriel Valley is definitely its own culture. So that that 
that is the biggest gray area. But for me, from Chatsworth to Long Beach, um, that to me is LA culture and, uh, we'll call the San Gabriel Valley a gray zone. Mm. It reminds me of reading some of the books on Los Angeles that I read from the 40s, 50s, 60s, around wartime and after. The people writing about Los Angeles, even if they're skeptical about Los Angeles, they won't bring up the light necessarily, but they'll bring up the uh, the size. They'll say, wow, if you consider everything south of Santa Barbara and north of San Diego, Los Angeles, this is uh, the city is huge. And they just go into, it's as if the size itself was a something astonishing to them. And something, I guess it's, in a way, it's surprising that a, a place, you could conceive of a place being so big, but I'm not sure why they would want to do that. Why? I mean, these are, they're, they're including, you know, might as well throw in Orange County. Might as well throw in, uh, you, right. might as well throw in until you get to where things can't grow east. You know, it's like, right. I wonder why the size itself was such a gripping thing for people for so long in Los Angeles, you know? Well, I think in the case of those people, it's like a recusal um, <laughs> to reckon with it. Uh, if it's if they say it's too big, it's too much, then they don't. Uh, they're excused from having to look at it and accept its its character as is. I mean, what's what's astonishing to me is that um, L.A. is uh, partially because of its size a much more intrinsically diverse city in almost every respect than, say, New York. Uh, it's diverse. I mean, it's probably the most diverse geographical major city in the, in the United States. And, uh, you know, in terms of the populations, in terms of the types of culture, in terms of um, how all these sort of mini municipalities function and have different identities, it's a, just a very... It's... It's diversity is not sublimated. It's very much on display. And yet there's always been that sense of Chatsworth, Downey, it's all the same thing. <laughs> but you never, ever hear anyone say, ah, the Bronx, Greenwich Village, Harlem, it's all the same thing. But to me, when you go to New York, that's much closer to the same thing than what we have out here. I mean, those are gridded streets with basically the same type of structures, and um, it would be easier to confuse that from an objective standpoint. And I just uh, think that says so much about the bias towards L.A. that its diversity is sort of... It's it's flaunted out here. I mean, it's it's explicit. It's broadcasted, and yet people can still get away with this idea that it's all just this generic mass. Uh, even making this argument that from Santa Barbara to San Diego is one thing. I mean, that's sort of like an extraordinary the dis, the amount of distortion and denial in in that sort of view of a place. There's so much fear in it, and I couldn't tell you what the fear is, but it is, it's an extraordinary amount yeah, of fear. You just you avoid you avoid the whole subject if you just say, "Well, it's illegitimate for reasons of its size, or for reasons <laughs> of anything else." Hundreds of miles of co- beautiful coastline yes. and like different geographies. That's a, that's a, it's just it's just extraordinary. It's it's your challenge when writing something like All Night Menu to then take that vast space with that vast diversity and then go to the the ultra particular you know it's 
it's it's of course it's a question you say people ask you all the time. You know, how do you how do you select out of all the possible stories you could tell about Los Angeles? How do how do you pick which ones? But that's not that's less what I'm interested in than I guess the sense of how how much of an actual burden do you feel to be representative of Los Angeles in any way with these books? I wouldn't say it's a burden. I would say it's. Uh I, one of the um, attractions of the projects, one of the things that makes it makes it easy, is that th- the LA has been so woefully represented for so many decades that there's this huge amount of space to sort of uh, put things on the table that no one's put there before. I mean, it's extraordinary to me that. I mean, what drives the book is just going to places, to subjects, to locations where other people haven't gone or where there hasn't been interest in terms of including it as part of the the city's identity and its character and its personality. And there's just no shortage because really what's been included in the past has been so narrow and delineated. And for me, it's just very clear that... um, Chats, uh, cowboys in Chatsworth, surfers in Malibu, hot rodders in Southgate, longshoremen in San Pedro, handball players in East LA, and Hollywood people all have an equal stake in the character of the city. How is it? I mean, we know why it is that only Hollywood people have been, um, sort of included in the picture, but... Because they make the pictures. Yeah, because they make the pictures. But, you know, and that's an amazing history, but it's not hard to... It's not hard for me at all to just um, invite those other characters and locations to sit at the table, you know? It's a pleasure. Such as the lava lady. Yeah, such as the lava lady. And and, And the other thing about the series is I've... Sometimes people describe them as lost histories or secret histories... And I've used those words to describe them, too, at times. But the fact is these aren't lost histories. <laughs> they're there. They're, they're there, and they're not obscure histories either. I mean, one of the things in the book is, um, and I think this has sort of come out more as I've developed it, but, uh, you know, in the new volume, people like Burt Grimm, the tattooer, or Lester Horton, a modern dance pioneer, or, or even the lava lady, these are epic stories uh, of L.A. I mean, these are major figures who did uh, extraordinary things. These, these aren't marginal, obscure figures. They're only marginal because they've never been accepted into sort of uh, uh, a view of what L.A.'s character is. They've never been put in that context. In tattoo history... Burke Grimm is huge, you know, in dance history, Lester Horton is huge. But n- for some reason, they've never been included in a context of what, what is L.A. history about? What is L.A.'s culture about? It's interesting you mentioned tattoo history, dance history. You find these people, they're, they're icons. Because it seems like, for, for me anyway, and I'll ask you this about how you got a handle on Los Angeles, but for me to get a handle on it, I always had to go through some sort of lens in that way, like, seeing how Los Angeles has been represented in, in the movies, starting watching, as we say, Tom Anderson's Los Angeles plays itself, then watching as many Los Angeles movies as I can, or going with what had been books that had been written on Los Angeles in a certain period, or specifically looking at architecture. I mean, 
for me, I've always had to find a framework that cuts down on the noise in every way but one, and then look at Los Angeles like that. You know, look at through, look through, look at it through the food framework. Look at it through the linguistic framework, through the architectural framework, and like my mind can only sometimes handle one of those at a time. And I think it's true for a lot of people, right? Yeah, and I think that's valid. I just think that uh, you can't <laughs> you can't tune out at the exclusion of other elements. Uh, that's how I began. I'm yeah, saying. Exactly. and I'm not saying you do this, but also. I mean, one of the things I would hear forever is that Los Angeles is the story of water. Los Angeles is, is, is the story of the police department. Los Angeles is the story of real estate. And you get great books on those subjects that have this wealth of information. And yet I'd read those books and it seemed to fundamentally miss how what the character of the city feels like to me. Everybody always wants to say Los Angeles is about a thing. It's about and then a thing. It's, but it's not about, a th- it's not about 10 million things. It's about an infinitude of things. Yeah, and every place is. And, that, and to me, that's what character is, whether you're talking about a person or a place. is um, It's the range of qualities. It's 360 degrees of qualities. And uh, until you walk, that 360-degree circle around something, then, uh, of course, you can have a, an understanding of it. But to, to have character development, just as in a story or a screenplay, you need... It becomes uh, enriched by walking around all the way. Some readers seem to take the all-night menu books as refutations of this idea that Los Angeles has, quote-unquote, no history. And I don't... I don't hear the accusation made that much these days that it's a historyless place, but I do find it fascinating the way that people have related to Los Angeles history to the extent that they know it. You know, Tom Anderson in his documentary has a big section on Chinatown, LA Confidential, and um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. These movies that use Los Angeles history to tell stories of, of shadowy conspiracies about the nature of Los Angeles that aren't 100% false, but I think 49% true would be a little too much. I mean, but the point is, it's enough for people to say, that's, a, that's an interesting movie about Los Angeles history. I know it's a movie, but I'm kind of going to accept it as a history anyway. You know what I mean? Like that, that phenomenon where this is just as good as history and it fits in with what I think history should be like. Uh, in Los Angeles, people are just willing to believe, aren't they, in some sense? Believe and not believe, but kind of like... You know, it's the whole streetcar conspiracy thing. There's a lot of people who won't stop talking about the supposed streetcar conspiracy. Not a lot of evidence for it, but they want to believe that shadowy corporations took our streetcars away. Why? Mm. I mean, that's a great story. It's it's a it's it's less a story told that way. It's less a story about L.A. as it is a story about sort of corporate avarice and of course that's just a subject that's going to be perennially sure. relevant to people you know probably more relevant much more relevant now than it was in the 40s um but yeah it's true i i'm not i, I just am not interested in top-down understandings of right. things where you're sort of attracted to a theme and then i mean i think probably the the sort of uh, 
what's lacking in some of those histories is that people are more attracted to the theme than right. the the content than the facts and to me it's it's much better in every respect to start with something small and build the truth out from there that's true that's true it is but there's still a thread running through even movies like those beyond the sense that people like stories about corrupt police forces or uh, streetcar conspiracies or yeah, you know, theft, theft of water. I mean, there's the sense that, tell me if you've sensed this at all. I, I feel like it's strong that like people kind of want to believe that Los Angeles is the result of things bad people have done. And, yeah. it, you know, well, of course, but I think that a lot of that too is that, uh, that sort of East Coast smear campaign uh, that has happened that has happened in LA and that, that's and again that's it's not an either or of course bad Los Angeles is a place where bad people have done bad things and of course as sort of a um, you know an isolated metropolis for most of its history some people were allowed to play with the law out here <laughs> in in unique creative and extraordinary ways sure. and that goes that's everyone from you know s- street criminals to politicians mm-hmm. to to businessmen right. um but uh you know i i just can't help but feel that some of that again is is just it's so outrageously and obviously false in its simplicity <laughs> that you you just have to believe it's part of of some sort of uh, some New York City sort of uh, media smear campaign. You know, con- the, the legend of one conspiracy makes you wonder about the reality of another. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you know, when you read about someone like Lester Horton, you're talking about. Uh, I mean, when you talk about contemporary dance, and again, that's not a, a subject that um, I knew I'd be writing about when I'd be writing about Los Angeles. That's something I'm writing about because that is legitimately part of Los Angeles's unique cultural legacy. To me, contemporary dance is a subject that's almost exclusively associated with the city of New York. Right. And... But when you when you unpack that notion, you know Doris Humphrey, Charles Weedman, uh, Martha Graham. These are all people who started in L.A. and relocated to New York. And when you're talking about Lester Horton, you're talking about someone who had uh, one of the earliest integrated dance companies in the United States. The first theater and school devoted solely to the art of modern dance in the United States, and and someone who basically turned Alvin Ailey from you know an, an awkward, shy uh, uh, gymnast from a high school in South LA into someone who would go to New York and sort of change the course of modern choreography, and you just think this. The facts of this story across the board refute the idea that L.A. was um, a culturally inferior, 
that it was in terms of so you know progressive social politics inferior that i mean all these things and to me it's it's really not about boosting LA i mean i do love LA and i do live here and it's it's the city i'm close to but it's it, it's more motivated by um some of these untruths that you're mentioning are uh they're enough to get you worked up and just say that's that's just not true right that's just not true you know that's always a great motivator for for any art or writing uh is just seeing seeing something get attention that's fundamentally wrong right um I think some of some of the writing is motivated by that. It seems like we're entering kind of a new age of Los Angeles boosterism now, or at least I'm seeing more of it going on. And of course, the previous age I think of is the boosterism that had the whole population boom going in the early 20th century. But I feel like what I one of the things I like most about Los Angeles is after that first wave of boosterism, the pre-noir boosterism, Los Angeles kind of went on its own steam and didn't need boosters, and I still think to an extent it doesn't need boosters, and not needing boosters has always been a a good and perhaps unique quality of Los Angeles, if, if you know what I mean. This, the fact that, yeah, I could boost Los Angeles, but you're probably coming here anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, the, the fundamental attractions here sell themselves. I mean, no one, no one creates the weather out here. Uh, no one creates the geography. No one creates the coastline. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, like you say, it's sort of extraordinary because as many machinations, uh, for all the machinations that created the idea of L.A. as this metropolis paradise... It's still fundamentally the light, the coastline, and the geography that bring people out here. And those things are, are not manufactured by, um, by guys in a boardroom. Uh, th- those are, those are legitimate, those are legitimate, powerful, potent elements of, of why people come here. If, uh, true a hundred years ago, true now. It's funny you mentioned, before that the lava lady was the breakout story from this latest volume volume two because i would have thought it would be the uh it would have been skateland in yeah. compton which is the story of this rink that only ran four years but evidently every every west coast hip-hop star of a certain age started out there it yeah. seems like how did you come across the story of skateland I hope the skateland story does break out they're doing the nwa movie this year yes. and uh skateland's Essentially, as I understand it, not a part of it. Uh, the guy I uh, consulted from in my research, who owned and ran Skateland, um, which is where NWA played for the first time, and, and basically all those Compton rap groups sort of started. He wasn't consulted for the movie, and I'm expecting it to be sort of a passing part of the story. Whereas for me, it's much more interesting to make it the fundamental part of the story. But I started out writing about... um, I wanted to write about roller skating culture in L.A. To me, that's something that just being here... And if you, you feel... And not because you're seeing people on the streets, but because... Uh, 
in any discussion of the music out here, especially rap music, you always hear about World on Wheels, which was the skating rink on right where Pico and Venice almost meet in the middle of the city. And that was sort of me the emblematic uh, roller skating rink and the one I'd always read about in uh, West Coast rap histories. And so I started researching World on Wheels, um, which was open until just a few years ago. Hmm. But it was a difficult... This is a great example of sort of a, 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 a story taking a detour because it was a much more diffuse history be, because World on Wheels... Um, was owned and operated by different entities. It went through several different stages in the course of its life. Um, it was hard to get in touch with people who had sort of been involved with it over um, a long period of time. And it's an amazing history, but it's just an unwieldy history. And someone I could get in touch with was Craig Schweisinger, who was this white guy from Torrance who opened the first roller skating rink in Compton in 1984. I tracked him down and in talking to him, you could get a complete history of, of skate land. And he, you know, he had, there was a, he had pictures. So there was a visual quality and, uh, he had posters he had posters and it was just perfect. And the contradiction of who he was, and how Skateland came to be, um, all of that was just perfect for the book. So it ended up being a story about Skateland and not World on Wheels. It's interesting, this guy. About, he's one of these guys who, tell me if this is the impression you have, and I always marvel at these people, who they can just do whatever business it seems to them like it'll work out. It's open a skate rink in Compton. Yeah, it seems like there's a market for that. Or it's it's just there's a lot there's a genre of person that I have trouble even understanding well, who can just do a. It doesn't matter what the business is, they just are good at doing a business for a while and making it profitable, and then going on to the next different kind of business entirely. Is that this right. guy? Well, I think he's he was uh, a fearless personality and a guy who um, he's an LA local who was comfortable in the inner city because he had grown up working in his father's grocery store in Watts um, so it wasn't arbitrary that he went to Compton uh, he was he was he was a smart businessman though you're right I mean I don't have that facility with business where I can if I loved skating starting a skating rink is a logical business decision but just just because it seems like that's a good business I'll do that I can't fathom that he was a business guy though he's a, I mean he was in real estate at that time and he was he's a businessman in the sense of if he can he he wants to get it for a nickel and sell it for a dime (laughs) whatever it may be whatever it may be and that's what i love about this story is that from something sort of uh, a unique confluence of circumstances uh one of them being this white guy from Torrance who's looking at commercial real estate opportunities happens to be comfortable in Compton because he grew up at his father's store in Watts happens to be looking at the late seventies when there's a huge skating boom in inner city LA. 
um, happens to be in Compton at a time where the hip hop scene is just coalescing there. All of these, the, this sort of spectacular uh, and unpredictable confluence of events results in NWA. Right. I mean, that's not why I wrote the story, but that to me is, that's an extraordinary LA story. Because, because 30 years later, NWA is still relevant. It's still a powerful thing. And the idea too that these teenagers took the word Compton and completely changed its meaning right. to the point where people in China, that, that word means something to them now. <laughs> and, you know, at the time Craig started Compton, Compton, it could have been Linwood or, you know, it, it was just a suburb of L.A. that had been a white suburb that had turned into a black suburb. Um, and uh, there was no association and that powerful cultural force that went global. Mm. I mean, it's such an amorphous thing now. The idea of Compton, Compton rap, gangster rap, that it started in not, in, not in one town, not in one street, but in one location. Right. You can trace it to there. And not only that, but that the truth of that location, when you look closely at it, contains so many different strands of LA history mm. you know and th that to me is um, that's one of my f my favorite stories in the series uh, and that's why it's at the end of this new volume uh, it's it's just the perfect example about how by focusing on this one location you can actually tangibly understand all the strange, contradictory, and wonderful forces that create a unique culture in a place. How often do you get to talk to direct participants in stories like uh, this Craig fellow, or, or anybody anybody who you know bore witness to what you're writing about? I'm sure you've talked to people who met the lava lady, for example. Right. But how often does that happen? Is that possible? Not often. Not often. I mean, uh, people who were born in the 40s are dying now. Right. So there's a statute of limitations on histories. Uh, and for instance, in the tattoo history, there was a couple people who had died in the last few years. People who did important things in the 60s and 70s are now reaching the end of their life. So unless I'm working with a story <laughs> in the 80s or the 90s, you're sort of hoping that you can get in touch with someone. And if it happened earlier than the 60s, you're starting to um, to look at uh, a generation that most likely has died in the, the past 10 years. So it's very unusual uh, to meet someone like Craig, um, who ran Skateland. Uh, but... The project's still possible without that. I like that mix of stories that materialize from archival sources mixed with stories that materialize from, you know, face-to-face -face sources. How much do you credit the idea that Los Angeles has traditionally ignored its history because of its focus on its future, that it's a sort of inherently future-oriented place? I think that's legitimate. 
What I always find myself wondering about, at least in my own attitude to Los Angeles, is how much to, how much of a foot, how deeply to put my foot into the future and how much to put it into the past. It seems like you're always sort of doing that balance in Los Angeles, or one always is, because especially now, it's not hard to look 10, 15 years in the future, and even I just say to myself, hey, the subway's going to go to La Cienega, it's going to be great, you know, brave new world. And really, I, on some level, I feel that way. But I don't know how much I'm just another person, and it's just another Angelino who's delude, deluded by their ideas of what the future's going to be here. You know what I mean? Like, how, you never know how much to credit what the future of Los Angeles is. It looks pretty bright now, but it probably looked bright in 1970, and I don't know if I would want to have lived in Los Angeles in the 80s and 90s necessarily, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, I think you're right. It's an, it's an awkward uh, growth in, in evolution in cities as the result of an awkward, uncomfortable collision of forces. And I mean, it, it's always hard for me to uh, to put words to this because it... Um, I don't want to sound callous, but I'm, I don't look at the city in a political way and I don't look at it in a, in a, in a moral way, it, it, at least in, in a, like a, a politically moral way. And, and I find that the idea of progress has a, has a lot of deep political and, uh, and moral implications in it. And not that I would excuse myself entirely from that conversation, but to me, the book isn't about um, passing judgment on what's good in the city and what's bad in the city, where the city should go, where it shouldn't go. It's more just about reading the city. And I, as someone who likes stories, I like when uncomfortable awkward complicated things happen yeah and I, I like look i like seeing that in a in a story and i think good culture comes out of those uncomfortable collisions um but i i can definitely agree with you now in the present it, it, it can be harder to experience that um, when you're subject to it personally than when you're understanding it as a as sort of a historical narrative. Right. I mean, what I wonder all the time what it means to be, to live in the present in Los Angeles, considering half the time I'm thinking about the history of it, half the time I'm thinking about the future. Right. And I don't know, it's... I'm not even sure how to conceive of just being in the present, and yet for so long Angelinos have been accused of only living in the present, you know? Right. Yeah, it's an interesting point you bring up. I don't... Uh, I mean, people have... Uh, I had a friend say to me that I had more than a respect for the past, that the book showed more than a respect for the past, that it showed this veneration for the past. Mm -hmm. And to me... I was horrified yeah, by that. Yeah, it doesn't sound I, like a good thing. Oh, my God. I, I think he was trying to be complimentary, and I thought... Yes. I mean, I can't think of anything worse you could say about someone than that. And I've, I've never conceived of the book in terms of nostalgia, uh, or even in terms of being a, a historian. I, I don't consider myself a historian. I don't consider historiography a primary interest. 
I'm interested in the character of a place and what creates the character. And to me, in in the same way that um, knowing uh, who your parents are and what they did for work enriches my understanding of who you are now and would enrich our, my conversation with you, understanding a place is no different. Under, uh, to me, it's inextricably, not even inextricably, but it's this fluid um, interaction between uh, the past and the present in L.A. There is no sort of like the future I'm more uncomfortable with, to be honest. But but the, to me, the present and the past are completely fluid and intermingling in people as in places. Mm. Um, and the book really comes out of an, of sort of enriching my present experience of L.A. Mm. and understanding the present character of L.A. Mm. by um, looking at what what has come before in the same in the same way you would as with a character. You don't have to do that. I don't have to know what your grandfather did to, for work for, for us to be close. But knowing that enriches my experience of talking to you now. And to me, this kind of work that I do is, is just another form of that. And back at the beginning, I mentioned that the Lava Lady picture was one of the more haunting ones that I recall of several haunting pictures. But I wonder, I mean, I feel like this word has been applied elsewhere to, to All Night Menu. Did you envision these images and these short histories coming together to give the series a sort of haunting character? Well, first off, that those photos were taken by this photographer, Oscar Jimenez, and um, he took a bunch of photos of the lava lady that are, uh, are extraordinary, and I was lucky he let me use those for the series, so I want to um, credit him with those. I really did want... Just uh, something eerie at the beginning of Volume 2. I thought I might find a... I was actually hoping I could find a ghost story or sort of an urban legend of some sort. Um, And it was really hard. And again, like that came out of more of wanting a, a certain tone and a certain element included. And it was really hard to find uh, stuff that didn't have to do with, you know... A, silent film actress hauntings how it's really corny stuff i wanted something from a neighborhood that that people still talked about and it it was really hard to find something and uh then i came across the lava lady story which which had that element and um and again was perfect for what i do on a lot of levels um and it I'm glad you you say it. it. There's an eerie, haunting quality to the characters. I like that quality. I like it in stories. To the books themselves. I mean, and I like it. I like it in stories. I like it in cities. Um, and but I don't. I don't look for that quality. To me, it exists in interesting places inherently. But what I do look for, I was glad you say. Uh, we we talk about images. A lot of these stories, I, they sort of grow out of one image like in the first book there's a story about the Velzy Jacobs shop which was the first surf shop first proper surf shop in LA it was under an oil derrick on the Venice Peninsula and uh, in reading about Velzy's life there was uh, someone described 
them projecting some of the earliest surf movies onto the side of the building and the local kids, you know, there's no TV back then, no even move, you know, no real surf movies. These were just basically Belzy got copies. You can only imagine like how special this was to see motion pictures of waves in Hawaii. And that's one of the reasons people would come to the shop because Dale Belzy had those things. So he's projecting them up on the side of the building at night and kids would get so excited that they'd <laughs> climb the oil derrick and ride the pump. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I love that image. Yes, and I, w- yes. to make these stories work, you really need that image that, uh, and again, that to me is more, that's, that's a tool of a fiction writer, not a historian. Yeah. But to me, to, to communicate these stories and to communicate the history, you need to use those tools. And having that image is so important to me. Mm-hmm. Or the lava lady moving across the sidewalks. Right. Or the, 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 uh, the Skateland guys walking into World on Wheels in their Skateland jackets. Right. Exactly. Precisely. And, and in every one of them, that's sort of not a rule but something i'm very conscious of that you have to there has to be this central image carmen de lavala the dancer riding the bus from south central up to melrose these connections uh with alvin ailey you know that there there you know or, or chet baker singing at night at this mansion in nichols canyon you know people sitting on the floor around him there has to be this really strong central image to to communicate these little histories you know that's something i don't see in other um for all the great information you get in other books i think that's one of those things i i didn't see and that i really wanted to have in this series and these are the kind of images, photographically and textually speaking, you'll get in the all-night menu books, of which two volumes of five are out right now from my guest today, Sam Sweet. Sam, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Colin. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks. Thanks.